0: teacher shortages are happening across the country and right here in Massachusetts
1: or are they so we have pre-pandemic the absenteeism rate was around 20% now it's closer to 40%. So when you're talking about like the classrooms look very different.
0: Why? Educators in this space say the student shortage is the problem and it's about more than the pandemic because knowledge is power and power is change. This is common narrative. The nation and the Bay State is in a critical teacher shortage. Organizations like the National Superintendents Association and the MTA say it's never been this bad. Fewer people are entering the profession and current teachers say low pay, long hours and general dissatisfaction are to blame. In September, reports showed that a lot of teachers in Boston left over the course of the pandemic, leaving a shortage of more than 200 teachers. And while we're talking about teacher shortages, many in the education space, we need to talk about student shortages. In Boston, absenteeism doubled from about 20% to about 40%. I break it down with Educators for Excellence Executive Director, Lisa Lazare. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I think this is such an important conversation, especially as we're you know, looking at things that happened this month with the teacher strikes and also the state of education since COVID. So I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me, Crystal. It's a pleasure to be with you today to discuss the important range of topics and I know it's really important for Bostonians and especially our folks in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan to really understand what's going on in our kids' classrooms and how their teachers who play a critically important role in their lives are working together to improve education
0: outcomes for our students. So uh, first I wanna get into how you got an education. It was something you were called to for a long, you know, from the beginning. Oh, actually I love this story because I think
1: it really elevates how important teachers are to your career path as you move through. Um, I'm Trinidadian. I came to this country when I was 10. So I was an immigrant when I came here. And so growing up, I had the immigrant mentality of the three jobs you can have is doctor, lawyer, accountant. That was back then. Now it's doctor, lawyer, engineer. So early on, like before I was six, I decided I'm going to be a doctor. That was my role, that was my goal, that's what I was doing. And so I spent my high school career, my college career really aiming for that goal. And then I found I had a lot of barriers to entry. And it first started when I was talking to my guidance counselors. I grew up in Long Island, New York, a historically marginalized community that was filled with majority immigrant families, um, Black and brown families. And I remember, um, so I had a graduating class of 600. I was 16 in my class. So naming, I was one of those honors kids, the kids on that path and track. And I remember sitting down with my guidance counselor. Like at that point, the only schools I knew were was like Cornell. I'm like, oh, Cornell is the, the top school I can ever wish to go to. And he sat me down and he told me like, hey, students from here don't do well in schools like that. Like, Mm -hmm. pretty much telling me to adjust course and go for less. Mm -hmm. And that crushed me. It was the first and last conversation I had with my guidance counselor. And so, from that day forward, it was really with me and my parents. And I was so fortunate to have parents who had a strong emphasis on having a strong education that we decided to do this on our own. So, I couldn't trust my own guidance counselors to guide me through this process as an immigrant trying to navigate college. And so, like, that was a Like still, I'm like in my late 30s today, that guidance counselor's comments stuck with me and I internalized it. Then in college, again, I'm going in, doing my degrees, taking STEM classes, and I found really quickly that by the time I was a sophomore in class, that organic chemistry class knocked out most people who looked like me. By the time we moved forward, like I was the only person of color in my class in STEM moving forward with this bio degree. And then even then when I was struggling, again, went to another counselor at the college and they told me like, hey, I see you're struggling with these classes. You know, instead of support, help, ways that I could do it, what I got told was, you know, maybe instead of becoming a doctor, you can become a teacher. And that comment is what, again, what prevented me from entering into this field for a few years because I thought me becoming an educator was me giving up on my dreams of becoming a doctor and that I was less than, and that I was not capable of doing. That of course is not the case at all. And I've taken years to really decolonize my mind in terms of what achievement looks like and recognizing that for lack of better words, these were well-meaning people in positions of power, trying to inform me how to navigate my life and giving me advice that completely derailed what I could and can accomplish. So that kind of stuck in me, that especially that comment about if you can't do teach, like so disrespectful. And what it really ignited in me is like, no, I know there's more students who look like me, who can do better in this space. And that set me off to be like, I'm going into the classroom. I know Orgo was the class that really knocked people out. So I'm gonna make sure that I am inviting every student who looks like me to take chemistry in high school because it wasn't emphasized. And I know chemistry is the class that kind of knocks you out of STEM. And so I became a chemistry teacher. I got into the classroom to have that impact. And I realized quickly that it was just the beginning of the game. And that opened the doors to lead me to the career that I have today, where I'm an education advocate and I'm able to educate on behalf, advocate on behalf of the educators and the students about like what it means to ensure that students of all races have an excellent education and an opportunity and access to the careers that they want. And so like that starting right range of like, no, don't, don't hold me down. Don't tell me no. I'm always gonna show you what I can do. Well, I can say as
0: someone who took uh, honors chemistry (laughs) and attempted AP chemistry and was told that I could not do AP chemistry, and I just took it because they told me I couldn't do it. I was always gonna be a journalism student, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I, having someone who supports you in these STEM spaces, I think it is so important um, because I think a lot of times it is assumed that STEM is not for us, it's not for people of color. And I have done so much reporting on this and it's like, we know that this is the problem. So why aren't we inviting solution? And so we could have a whole nother show on STEM and I will absolutely (laughs) invite you back. But I'm thoughtful of this educator of color piece because I know the state of Massachusetts has been working hard or I'll say working on the issue. There's been some money that's been put toward it. But where are we in terms of getting more people of color in the classroom? Because we know, I believe the statistic is still 90% or more are white women are teachers in the classroom
1: actually the statistics for Massachusetts is 80 percent of the educators are identify as white whereas only 20 percent identify as teachers of color and unfortunately as you look across the commonwealth those those it varies and is very stark in some spaces there's only one teacher barely um and it's very important that we think about educator diversity holistically, that it's not just an opportunity for students of color. Educator diversity impacts all students. And I think something that's really critical to think about is that we've invested a lot of time, money, energy, efforts, policies into educator recruitment, specifically BIPOC recruitment. But what I haven't seen and what I'm not necessarily pushing is educator retention. We get educators into the classroom. We burn them out and we see them. leave. In fact, the statistics says that a BIPOC educator is more than likely to be within their first five years of teaching. And we also have data that says that educators in general are more likely to exit the classroom within the first five years. So we're seeing this critical gap. What are we doing to ensure that we are creating spaces where educators of color can not only stay, but thrive within a school system. And I think one of the things that we're working on here at Educators for Excellence is a campaign around retention policies, specifically around BIPOC educators, and especially in spaces where the student population is majority BIPOC and they need to have that
0: representation and that opportunity to have a teacher in front of them. Well, I think that piece about that having a BIPOC educator is not just for the other black and brown kids, right? It's about all of the kids because there are communities where white kids, like I live in Arlington, and this is something we've talked about in the community. Many of these kids could go K through 12 and never have a teacher of color. And how then they get to college and they're surprised. Like they're like, oh, there there are brown teachers. There are teachers of color. And so I think of I think of how important that enrichment, that piece is for their enrichment, right? Having teachers from diverse backgrounds. Um, what is the solution in terms of t- retention? Is that something that needs to come from the top down in terms of, support programs what does that look like to keep these teachers here if we get them to massachusetts
1: so i think when we're talking about teacher retention and i'm also recognizing that we're talking in a space where teacher shortages feel very real right Um, and so like why i want to highlight Retention and specifically retention policies when we're talking around shortages is that these vacancies are super concentrated in specific states districts and positions, not everywhere is experiencing this and specifically you're seeing it mostly in rural areas and high poverty areas are experiencing these shortages. Um, And so like these significant staffing shortages are impacting the teacher sustainability and student learning. But also we can recognize that we are seeing a significant decrease in the teacher to student ratio currently right now there are actually more teachers per student in schools now than they were pre-pandemic and so the district student to teacher ratio has shrunk from 2019 to 2023 um where in 2018, 2019, the student to teacher ratio was um, about 12.2 students for every one teacher. Now it's 10.8 students to every one teacher. Again, this is the lowest ratio BPS has had since their public sharing of this data in 2004. And so like when this is happening, what we are seeing is that it's more than likely a trend that there's going to be a reduction in staffing if we're seeing that we're not necessarily getting the student ratio where we are. And so when that happens, this is where we're kind of centering Like we're seeing like right now the conversation is on shortages, but if we look a little further ahead. About a year or two out we're coming into a space where reduction in stats maybe may start happening, and when that happens, that is when we need to have. Retention policies in place specifically to protect our BIPOC educators, because, like I said, Crystal earlier in this conversation. BIPOC educators are more than likely to be within their first five years of in the teaching profession. When there's a reduction in staff, it doesn't matter if you're a high quality teacher, it doesn't matter if you're a teacher of the year. At that point, it's just going off. I'm like, how long you've been there? And so in thinking about that and thinking who's going to be disproportionately impacted by that policy, this is how we're thinking about, like, what can we do now to start thinking about the future of, like, how can we continue protecting all of the efforts we've done to increase teacher diversity within the, the commonwealth.
0: So when we're talking about teacher shortage, is that more of a national conversation That we're just talking about in Massachusetts like are we experiencing a teacher shortage in Massachusetts I know teachers that are one teacher to 32 kids in the classroom is the problem that district by district there's no real metric to make sure that that we're seeing the same ratios in in other districts.
1: And so overall, like we're seeing the overall trend um, and this is truly due to the absenteeism of students where we've seen a huge increase where pre-pandemic the absenteeism rate was around 20%. Now it's closer to 40%. So when you're talking about like the classrooms look very different, there's some classrooms where yes there is a teacher to 30 plus students but then there's other classrooms where there's a teacher to two students depending on who's showing up in the class and where that school and district is, Um, there is great inequity in terms of even within a district, like what that staffing looks like, depending on who is there and how resourced that school is. And so recognizing that like the shortages is true and is truly felt, especially amongst um, our teachers for special needs and supporting students with social emotional learning. Like that's huge areas of opportunity where we are seeing the greatest decrease, especially within those shortages um, and needing to be able to, to bulk up and support that capacity for the
0: teachers who are currently here i imagine the conditions for teaching have been drastically changed since the pandemic and i'm thinking about like in Haverhill, one of their their collective bargaining proposals has to do around school safety and supporting kids who are emotionally struggling and you know i hear from young people and i hear from teachers in the classroom that you know they're not necessarily psychologists but you have so many kids struggling emotionally and that's got to be a huge piece to to teaching now post-pandemic.
1: Absolutely. Um, educators for Excellence did a survey report earlier this year where, like I was naming, where we sampled over 110 Boston educators. Um, so this is part of a larger national survey that we do of teachers. Um, and so we did the oversample for Boston to just get more specific data about what is going on here. And like, it was pulled out into three major buckets. Um, And I think the bucket you were just speaking was around the state of the classroom. And so like in the state of the classroom, what our Boston teachers were naming for us is that 87%, like this majority of educators in the classroom um, are saying that the shortages of specifically, and this is what I was saying before, the special needs support staff um, is specifically a problem in their schools. And and then when you're adding that layer of like, again, the same majority, the 85% is saying that the shortages of the social emotional support staff is a challenge. And so this adding to the fact for capacity reasons, again, over 87% of teachers say that now they don't even have um, like a prep time. They have to use that preparation time to cover a class at least once or twice a month. Like, so all of that is kind of speaking to like the taxed on capacity that teachers are feeling. And then like the one last data point that was kind of pulled out from that whole piece was around how likely were they to stay in the classroom? thinking about all of the things that are happening with our educators right now. And what we found was that, interestingly enough, 73% of Boston educators um, were likely to stay in the classroom for their entire career. And so upon first notice, this seems like a great and high number, but when you pull out and look nationally, 86% of teachers nationally were saying that they were willing to stay in the classroom. So there's a disconnect about what's happening in Boston. And I think that's one of the exciting pieces of this data is that we're taking it and we're talking to teachers around, like, hey, this is what we found. Does this resonate? Is this speaking to what we're seeing here? Because the overall narrative speaks to a much darker story that the teachers are leaving in droves. But we're right. seeing that actually the
0: majority are wanting to stay and are dedicated to their profession. So, what supports do they need to stay? Um, you know, I know teachers. Don't get into it to become millionaires, they get into it to make a difference. Roadblocks like the pandemic, access to technology, a lot of the external factors are making it harder to do their jobs. So, uh, you know, given the data collected from this report, what are some solutions, I guess, or, or at least pathways towards solution?
1: Solutions. And so I found solutions is also a really interesting point and piece for us to discuss. Um, And this is also a data point that um, we're bringing to our teachers and we're having a really robust discussion on it. And I wanna speak to it in comparison between Boston and national. So in Boston, one of the ways that teachers were talking about like, hey, this is what can help me stay in the classroom, about 52% of Boston teachers identified that it was a higher salary is what will be effective in in retaining our teachers yeah inflation is real (laughs) exactly inflation is real and regardless of the fact that our Boston educators are one of the highest paid educators you still feel it living in Boston but what I thought was really interesting about that data point was that it was 52 for Boston it was 86 for the rest of the nation And so recognizing that that gap in money is not all that it is. Um, We also did a survey of BIPOC educators specifically, not specific to Boston, but across the nation. And what I found was interesting, if we wanted to retain specifically BIPOC educators, they did not list salary as what needed them to stay. What they needed was professional development. Mentorships, access and opportunity to be able to grow in their role was what majority of like BIPOC educators named versus salary. So I feel like that speaks volumes into like what are the things we can continue building and why retention policies can be a really strong opportunity to keep our BIPOC educators.
0: So as we move forward, when we're talking about, uh, you know we're moving into this the, go from pandemic to this inflation crisis right? right and 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 we have districts who are just trying to make it work and so what do we need to be thinking in we, we i feel like a lot of the overarching thing has been retention but what about supports in terms of i am, i imagine teachers live in communities they're connected to 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 families uh through the their space what would be the way that the state can best support teachers in their roles uh, holistically? That's a great question.
1: In speaking to teachers, a lot of their frustrations isn't, it's it's truly around um, just a lot of the work and the capacity of what they're able to do. Because now, um, and I know we just recently saw the released MCAS scores, where it's painting a stark picture of where we are and how much our students have fallen over the years and like what it means for them to pick back up. Will you speak a little bit to that for folks
0: who aren't plugged in?
1: Ah, so when we're talking about the MCAS data that was recently released, what we saw was that like for at least the two decades of progress in advancing students learning um, in math and science were like drastically erased um, in the two years. Most dramatically for black and Latino students. Well, what this means is that we saw that the MCAS scores for math and reading specifically for black and Latino students falling far greater than anticipated. Um, And so this is also tied into the fact that there's like chronic absenteeism in Boston and that has doubled from 22% before the pandemic to 42% now in 2022. So those two pieces combined is kind of lending itself to understand like why our scores down and like why are
0: why are we struggling in our schools to engage our students. And that leads to this teacher shortage issue. I um, mean or the conversation being end up being I guess misnomer is the word that comes to mind, but like misrepresented because there might be a certain number of kids on the rolls, but they're not showing up to school. I'm you, sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: Since the pandemic, we have lost a ton of students in Boston, and that makes sense. It's very expensive, especially families on the lower end are very transient. There was not a lot of opportunity within Boston, and people were moving around. Mm -hmm. Um, And so especially because we were virtual, it was harder to keep track of where families were going to. And some families like lost the parents, lost the people who were the, the, the homemakers, and it fell onto the students. So a lot of things happened that disrupted how we even measure and think about our families and our students. And so now we're bringing them back into the classroom. And so our teachers are also struggling with great disengagement with our students. You know, how can you bring someone back who's been a year and a half outside of the structure of what it means to be in school. So when I'm talking to my teachers in high school, in middle school, it feels like it's a great reset of retraining students about what's happening. When I'm talking to teachers in elementary school, we're hearing some concerning data in terms of how students are socializing and engaging in one another. We recognize that as as we move forward, the pandemic is going to have a lasting impact. And if we don't about how we're holistically supporting our students, especially our kiddos who miss those two years at a really critical time in their lives, and I'm talking about the kids, especially in elementary school, from second to third grade, who are now in like fourth and fifth and sixth grade, who do not have that core foundation, how are we going to support them in the future? And I think this is also lends itself into another campaign that we are working on is on literacy. It's tied to the MCAS scores, we've seen that literacy rates have fallen um, in June our teachers were working on a teacher action team and developed a memo around literacy where they were looking at and potentially thinking about the solutions. And what I found was really exciting about our teachers who were thinking about innovative ways of approaching this literacy problem was that our high school teachers specifically was asking for more professional development in the science of learning. If you understand that in elementary school, that's where the foundation of reading really lies. But if you're a high school teacher, I was a high school chemistry teacher, I can't, it was very hard to support a student if you, are, if you are in my classroom in grade illiterate. I am not able to break down the foundation of how to connect this work for you. And so recognizing that our high school teachers are saying like, hey, actually we can use some supports in understanding how to build up the science of reading for our students, recognizing that this is something that should be in elementary school, but because of the pandemic, we are now seeing students at a greater rate coming into high school wholly unprepared to be able to digest and understand that content. Like how then are we supposed to support them? But I, think, I, also- I
0: love that you brought this up, this literacy, because <laughs> I have spoken to so many educators, not just you know in in high school and things like that, it, not just in Malden where my husband's a teacher, but across so many places. BPF, and it still, as a layperson, boggles my mind that a student not necessarily an immigrant or or any of that kind, not an ESL student, but a student who has gone through the American public education system can get to 10th, 11th, 12th grade and not know how to read. That is wild to me that that's happening. And I don't think it gets talked about enough.
1: I agree. It's an incredible phenomenon that does not make sense if you're on the outside looking in, Mm -hmm. but when you're on the inside and part of the system, you can see for lack of better words, it's kicking the can down the road until the can graduates. And at that point, the entire system has failed them. Like I can't sit here as an educator if that student went through my class and graduated illiterate. I can't sit here and say I did my job. Mm. And so recognizing that we are failing students consistently if we're not able to engage them, especially in literacy, like that's the one core thing that can help you move and navigate this world. And I know like how critical and important that is. And if we're not able to support our students in that, like how else can we move them forward? But then there's all of the ways that, for lack of better words, our students are able to hide behind our own policies that we have in the classroom to ensure this equity. And so we do end up at the situation where instead of really supporting and fine tuning the needs of our students, we kick the can. And then it, it always falls of like, hey, I got someone, I'm like, I can't necessarily support you. Like I'm going to do the best I can under the constraints. And especially when you get into high school, it's not about the four foundation. If you can read, yeah. it's about like Can you complete this worksheet? Can you complete the bare minimum of what I'm asking for you to move forward? And so we get into this really interesting piece of like, not necessarily whose job it is, but like, how do we support? If the students have been filled in the past and like now, especially with the pandemic, like I said, two years of that core foundation is lost. So we will have to face this problem and we can't assume that it happened in elementary school because there's a whole cohort of students where we know that didn't happen. So what do we do next.
0: Well, and is what this- responsibility is it that's like what ends up happening. Well, absolutely. And one thing that that, again, is like a layperson who does some education reporting, I was thinking of, and this is a little, might, it's probably might throw you a little bit of curveball, but I, I love this conversation that we're having. So I'm going to ask you anyway. I was thinking about in all of the ways that the pandemic exposed the fact that school has become a place of learning it's become where we feed children. It's become where we give them therapy and the social emotional supports. It's become a, day, a babysitter. It's become where kids receive parenting and boundaries. It's become where kids learn life skills. It's become an athletic program where kids work out. It's become all of the things at once. And we have been pretending as a society, and this is my opinion, that school, that it is not, that I'm providing all of those things for my kids, my family, all those things outside of school and kids are just showing up to learn the A, B, C, and one, two, three, when it's not. And I think the pandemic exposed that to the the greater public, maybe folks who aren't really paying attention. But what did not happen is for us to say collectively as a society, we need to give schools more because they are doing, all of the things all of the things it is not the teacher's job to you know make sure that the students are fed beyond lunch like beyond the time they're with them it's not the teacher's job to give social emotional support i mean for crying out loud like you know i i had i had one friend who was providing you know period support for their kid and for a student in high school and explaining how not to get pregnant. Like it was like, these are things that are beyond teaching, you know, the the battle of Waterloo. Like I just, (laughs) and I think it is a failing of us as a society for not realizing what schools have become because what it has become is a dumping ground for all of our social issues. And then we ask teachers and educators and administrators to fix it, fix it for us for free. Like, I just, you know, you pay taxes, but ostensibly for free. And we ask teachers to stay longer and we ask administrators to you try to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And we complain when those things aren't happening the way we want them into the, the quality and caliber that we want them. And that's my rant. But my question to you <laughs> is um, how can the public get better educated in ways? In which that school systems need support is it more funding is it just checks or is it that there needs to be a better engagement piece to bring parents into the classroom to the capacity that they can be sorry my rant (laughs) that was my rant but (laughs) outside of that (laughs) I I also have, I have
1: a few thoughts um, in terms of like, so for me, when you're saying that school has become everything for a student, like, for me, it kind of centers in that school is community. Um, it is a cornerstone of a strong community. And when our schools are failing, we see that our community is failing. And so like, you, it's an linked, like things that are happening within our school systems, what's going on with our students, we're seeing it's linked to housing, it's linked to criminal justice, it's linked to a lot of host of other things in terms of like, how core we've made our school community. That being said, you're absolutely right, we have put a lot of pressure emphasis and dumped a lot of responsibility in terms of like what can a school do and accomplish versus the community as a whole and I think I'm coming here from like an interesting lens like I said I grew up in Trinidad we were communal Mm -hmm. for example if I did something wrong every person who knew me between now and going home could have smacked my butt yeah. And then tell them, yeah, smack your child because I see her do that. Like, yeah, okay, And so like there was this communal feeling in terms of like it was not just my parents parenting me. It was the community around us, our school community, our teachers. We were integrated in a different way. I came to the United States and it's a little bit isolated in the fact. And so when you said about the engagement of parents, it's not just the engagement of parents with the school. It's the engagement of parents with each other like mm-hmm. the core community it's not and i think we only see it one way between the parents and the school and the school and the parents but the power of parents together especially like again immigrant parents who i come from a country where education is excellent and a lot of families from third world countries you can trust your school system to do best for your student and you come here and you realize you You need to navigate it. You need to advocate for that. And it's not something you're expecting. You're assuming that the American system is going to do right by your kid because you're coming from another country where the course education is what is worth. So you come here and you see that there's not necessarily that community. They're not necessarily connecting with you. And then on top of that, you assume anything your school says is right. It's true. I'm not going to push back and fight on my school system because you tell me something. But like we learn and we come in here and when parents start organizing, they realize like, hey, we need to advocate for our children very specifically if we want to get those services. And it's something that if you don't know, how would you know to navigate? And so it's a really interesting question when I think about like what the school system has become and what our community is and I feel that there's a link that's missing in terms of like, how are we ensuring that our community is healthy, a healthy community, I think speaks to a stronger school community. And you can see that specifically in communities that um, are a little bit wealthier in socioeconomics in terms of like the parents aren't just a parent with their school. It's a community in terms of how they advocate themselves for the school. And it's something that I think it's critical that one educators for excellence, one supports teachers and being able to do that work for themselves, but also ally with organizations that are supporting parents as well. This community piece is super critical to ensuring
0: that we're moving this forward. Well, Lisa, sis. You're one of my top people now. <laughs> you're, on list, you're on my list of top favorite people. Um, and I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule to, to talk to me on Common Narrative.
1: Oh, Crystal, I really appreciated this time, this opportunity to just elevate our incredible educators. I recognize that this conversation paints a stark view of education, but I also want to shine a bright light that there are incredible people in this space right now um, who are doing above and beyond for our students and our kids and like they need our support and they need our advocacy and so like I want to continue building and ensuring that the teaching profession is a space that is attracting high quality talent um, and is ensuring and building upon that community that I named. I think it's a wonderful intersection of what it means to be a part and engaged in your space. Um, And so, again, thank you for this opportunity. I look forward to talking to you further about all of the different ways that we can support and build a beautiful community and education system.
0: Hey, many thanks to Lisa Lazare from Educators for Excellence. For more information and their latest report on all this, go to e4e.org. For more information on Common Narrative, hit us up on social at Common Narrative or Common Narrative Media. And of course, tune in every Monday from 1 to 3 on Spark FM Online. Find past episodes on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Take care of each other.